I know that sometimes the questions are tough and sometimes they require a little extra effort, but I enjoy being able to explore what is relevant and what is interesting to you. And I encourage you that if you have a question about a passage of Scripture or something, uh, please write it down on one of the visitor's cards, hand it to me, and I'll put it in the list of questions. And sometimes they work out real well to go together. I want to begin by pointing out that many of us have questions about things that are written and what they mean. Um, One of the good sisters come in tonight and asked me, she said, when you read the book of Romans, do you ever look and read it again and say, what does that mean? You see, in Mark 9 and verse 10, there's a questioning among themselves as, what does the resurrection of the dead, what does this rising from the dead mean? Is it something that was just a temporary thing, perhaps like took place with regards to Lazarus? Or is this a person who might, for instance, be resurrected from the dead never to die again? You see, there's a lot of questions that might come up in a person's mind. And we can either search and try to find the answer on our own, and I try to encourage people to do that. I encourage people to take your Bible and look and read it yourself and you know, see if you can find other passages of Scripture that address that issue. But if you can't, or if you're not sure about what you have studied, then there's nothing wrong with asking someone to provide a little additional guidance. For instance, in Acts 18 and verse 26, talks about Apollos. It says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You know, sometimes we, we're striving to do our best. In fact, you may know a lot, but there may be something that you feel like, I don't know if my understanding of this is correct or not. Well, over the past several months, we've been looking at various types of questions. Some are textual. We have one of those questions tonight that will address a particular passage of Scripture. Some are topical. In fact, our first question tonight is somewhat topical, somewhat practical. And then there are those that are practical in nature. How do we apply a certain passage of Scripture and and find meaning in it? So we have three questions tonight, and the first one is one that I anticipated. And listen carefully. Should those praying at the Lord's table say, thank you for dying on the cross for us when praying to the Father? Now, um, not just here, but in several places I have sat when people have led the prayer before the bread or the fruit of the vine, and in their prayer they have said, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Now, here's what I recognize. I believe that people who do so, do so out of nervousness. For those, particularly those of you who are ladies who cannot get up here and do this scripturally, let me tell you what it's like to stand in the pulpit in front of 300 people. It is something that will play with your nerves. It does with me every service. Uh, If you don't become a little bit nervous, there's something wrong with you. Because you have to look at the responsibility of what you're doing. But this is something that 
nerves do come into play. And sometimes we misspeak, not intentionally. Sometimes we've not thought it through well enough and we say things we ought not say. We have to recognize that there is an inability of man sometimes to express himself properly. In Acts 8 and verse 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. Now listen carefully. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Now I want to just take that phrase for just a moment. There are times when we do not express everything in our prayers that we ought to express. There are times when we have things we want to say, but they are difficult for us to express. In fact, that is the context when he says, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. That is, when I have a desire to express something to God, but the best I can do is groan. The Holy Spirit knows my mind and is able to communicate that accurately to the Father. So I want to encourage you to understand, first of all, that sometimes people speak and say things that they would not otherwise say, but it's due to sometimes nervousness and sometimes their inability to speak carefully. But Jesus taught that prayers were to be addressed to the Father in his name. Now, I want to go to John chapter 16 and look at verses 23 and 24 and then verses 26 and 27. This is unambiguous. It's clear. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, before we look at verses 26 and 27, I want you to notice Jesus is anticipating a day in the future. He's anticipating a day when the kingdom will be established. He's anticipating a day when he will no longer be here on earth. And so he says, in that day, you will ask me nothing. That means that we do not pray to Jesus. We pray to the Father. He said to him, he says, you ask the Father and he will give it to you in my name. That means by his authority. Now when you drop down to verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name and I do not say that I shall pray to the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you and because you have loved me, and I believe that I came forth from God. The second thing that we need to realize is we're not praying to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you tell the Father. Jesus said, no, you address the Father directly. I'm not saying that I will pray to the Father for you. Someone says, but he's our mediator. That he is, certainly. But he mediates on behalf of our sins. It is Jesus who took his blood and presented it to the Father as a sacrifice for our sins. And he knows our weaknesses. He knows our inabilities. But when it comes to prayer, we ought to be addressing the Father. And so when we're leading the prayer at the table, those of us who may preside at the table, we ought to say, Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. 
And then we ought to be thankful that Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself. Now, I always like to make something practical. I'd make a suggestion that you write out your prayers to be sure that you are both accurate and respectful in your prayers. Over the years, it's been my privilege, sometimes responsibility, to lead prayers at occasions where I know that I will be nervous. In fact, several years ago, I was asked to lead the prayer, the the last prayer that was led at the graduation of the Warren County High School. Right before the prayer, the man who later became Vice President Al Gore came up and shook my hand and said, good to meet you. And uh, I sat next to him on the stage. But before I went there, I had written out what I was going to say. I tried to memorize it in my head, but I wanted to make sure that when in that circumstance, when in that place, I wanted to say the right thing. The same thing was true two or three times I've been asked to go before the county commission and lead the opening prayer at the county commission. Each time I want to think about what I'm going to say prior to saying it. So if I know that I, in advance that I'm going to be called upon to lead the prayer before the table or as a public prayer, then as much as I possibly can, I want to make sure that I make some preparation. Question number two. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51, the veil was torn from top to bottom. What does this mean? Now, Matthew 27 verse 51 reads, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Now, that's a really good question. In fact, if you go to the gospel accounts, you realize that we are told the curtain was torn, but we are not told which one of the curtains. And you say, what do you mean? Was there more than one? Was there more than one veil? Actually, there were three. And the first one was that veil or that curtain that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. We learn about it from Josephus that it was 60 feet tall and it was 30 feet wide. Now if it was this curtain that was torn and people observed it, people saw it, then that's certainly a possibility. Then it's possible that what he was referring to was what Paul spoke of in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. As Paul was describing the relationship between Jew and Gentile, he put it like this, For he himself is our peace, who has made both, that is Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. It's as if now there's no longer a separation between Jew and Gentile, that they are one in the Lord. I don't believe that's the veil that he was referring to, but I do think it's important to mention it. Second of all, there was a veil over the entrance to the temple itself or to the tabernacle. It's described by Josephus in detail in his book, The Antiquities, chapter 3, section 127. 
If it is that one, perhaps it was to symbolize the opening of the priesthood to all. Because only the priests were able to go into the area where uh, the daily sacrifices were being made. We learn from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What that means is, is that every one of us, when you become a child of God, you become a part of this royal priesthood, this holy priesthood. When John was given the book of Revelation, in chapter 1 and verse 5, he said, and made us to be kings and priests to God. Chapter 5, verse 10, and made us to be kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on this earth. So perhaps the tearing of that veil between the top to the bottom was to open up the holy place. But there was a third curtain, a third veil. And that's the one that existed between the holy place and the most holy place. In Exodus chapter 26, verse 33, Moses was told, And you shall hang the veil from the clasp, and then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there, behind the veil, and the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. Now that was the one that most often was referred to when you talked about the veil of the temple. In Hebrews 9 and verse 3 we read, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called holiest of all. The fact that the Hebrew writer says here the second veil makes it clear that there was already one in the front. In Hebrews 4 verse 16 he says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The picture there is, is that we now have accessibility before the God of heaven. But you see, if you go a little bit further in Hebrews, to chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, there's a beautiful picture there. He says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The picture here is, is there's a veil there, and Jesus has gone in there, but it says we have the hope ourselves of going in there. He was the forerunner who went before us. In chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, folks, I think there is the key passage. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 
It says the veil was torn from top to bottom. The top to bottom indicates it's God's activity, not man's. And as Jesus dies, and it says here his flesh, that is the veil, his death made possible the entrance into the most holy place where God's presence is at. I think that's a very significant answer to a question that reflects a lot of deep thought in this. Now question number three. This perhaps should be a whole lesson in and of itself, but I think I ought to take just a little time and to make a very important point about this. And the question was asked, why is the church not a denomination? I'm fearful that too many members of the body of Christ have a denominational view of the church. And I want to do a little bit to begin with of explanation of views to define some terms. I've got a little pocket dictionary of theology or theological terms. And it says denominationalism as a theory understands a church as consisting of a diversity of practices and beliefs under the umbrella of the larger term Christian while at the same time denying that any one Christian group can claim exclusive manifestation of the church on earth. What they're saying in some big words is basically this. Everybody who claims to be Christian is under one big umbrella. But none of us are fully and completely the church. In the New Oxford American Dictionary, it's a religious denomination is a subgroup within a religion that operates under a common name, tradition, and identity. In other words, as if you were to take one group and you were to give them a name, call them a Baptist, call them a Methodist, call them a Presbyterian, call them an Episcopalian, and a tradition... They do things a certain way. You can recognize them by the principles which they hold and an identity. You can find them. You can locate them because of that name and because of that identity. Wikipedia, which sometimes has some really good definitions, said denominationalism is the division of the one religion into separate groups sex, school of thought, or denominations. Now, different people try to portray it in a way that you can visualize it. For instance, some view it as a tree. Here's a very common picture of what people believe about Christianity, quote, unquote. They will begin and say it began as one group, but then it began to branch off like a tree would have branches. And some people actually believe that when Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches, that what he's referring to is not individual Christians, which by the way he is, but he's referring to different denominational groups. Or others view it as like a piece of pie, apart for the whole. On the Wikipedia page, this 
photograph is found. And it called, it's called Christian Denominations Adherence in the Millions. If you'll notice, it looks like a, a circle, a donut in this case. And you'll notice they have Roman Catholic and then at the top, Oriental Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, non-denominational, other Protestant, Pentecostalism, so on and so forth. So that what you end up with is an idea that all of this is a part of the group, just individual bodies. Now you can view denominationalism as the view to the left, as a piece of pie with various religious groups. The Bible views it to the object to the right, the church of Christ. And you can say, oh, you're getting to be very, very narrow-minded and legalistic and sectarian. You see, the truth is Jesus has only one body, and that one body is the church. You see, it's not important to know what I think. It's not really important what you think. It's not important what the world thinks. The important thing is what Jesus said Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all made to drink into one Spirit. He didn't say you were baptized into a number of denominations. He said you were all baptized into... One body. I think it's important to notice, how did they get into that body? What does the text say? You were baptized into that one body. Somebody says, but that one doesn't really mean one. In Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. Well, how many Jesuses, how many lords do you have? Well, he says, there's one Lord, verse 5. How many gods do you have? Verse 6, just one God. How many bodies do you have? Verse 4, there's just one body. But is the body the church? Absolutely it is. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church, which is his body. Colossians 1, verse 18, verse 24, And he is the head of the body, the church. Verse 24, for the sake of his body, which is the church. Okay, if there's only one body and the one body is the church, there is no way around it. There is just one church taught in Scripture. Jesus only built one church. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I say unto you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. 
Then when we go to listen to Jesus as he prays his prayer in John 17, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus didn't pray that we would all try to get to heaven just following different routes. Jesus prayed for the unity, the oneness of his body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. When Paul then turns and criticizes the church at Corinth, he does so because of their naming. I am of Paul, I of Cephas, I of Apollos, or I of Christ. The problem with all of this is denominationalism says it's okay to have your own set of rules. It's okay to have your own leader. It's okay to have your own name. But Acts 4 verse 12 says, There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It is just one name. But you know, we're going to be accused of being arrogant. We're going to be accused of being exclusive. And you're, you're believing that you're the only ones who are going to go to heaven. Folks, listen carefully. It doesn't matter what I believe or what you believe. What matters is what Jesus says. Well, what did he say? Jesus sets the terms. I don't. I don't determine who's in the body, who's out of the body. I don't determine the... the obligations, the conditions for being in the body. It's His church. That's the reason why we say the church of Christ because it's His. That is not a denominational term. It's not as if we can say, okay, well, are you a church of Christ? Are you a Baptist? Are you a Presbyterian? When you say the church of Christ, you're saying the one that belongs to the Lord. He built it. He paid for it. It is His. Somebody says, but that's being so exclusive. Listen to Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes into the Father except through me. Does that mean, Jesus, I cannot go through Joseph Smith and the Mormons? No, you can't go through them. Jesus said, you've got to go through me. What about Muhammad? Can, can I be an... A Muslim, and can I to choose to follow God through him and go to heaven? No, Jesus said, except through me. Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. When you get to verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
I can't change that. I have no authority to change that. And so when we start talking about the church not being a denomination, we're saying that Jesus himself gave the conditions to be a part of his body, the church, and that's it. But let me tell you, that is not being exclusive. You see, to be exclusive says you can't be a part of it. Do you remember this morning when I talked about the people in Antioch? how the next Sabbath day when almost the whole city was gathered together to hear the word of God, that the Jews seeing the multitude were filled with envy and contradicted and blasphemed the things spoken by Paul and Barnabas. That's the kind of people who says, it's mine and it's not for you. It's the kind that says, it's going to be my kind of gospel and you don't have access to it. And first. Timothy 2 verse 4, Paul said, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. Everybody has the right to become a child of God who believe in his name, John chapter 1 verse 12. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. That's the reason why he sent Jesus to die because the golden text of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To conclude with, I want to use the idea of a question The man that actually became the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul does that. He goes and he prays intensely. But he has not yet been told what he must do. In recounting that event in Acts 22, Ananias came in and said, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Is there somewhere in your mind, somewhere in your thoughts, Lord, what would you have me to do? The Lord has never shown prejudice toward others to say, I'll say this one this way and I'll say this one that another way. It's been told you what you must do. Found in the pages of Scripture. Many of you know what you need to do. You know that baptism is what stands between you and being a part of that great body of Christ, the church. That's what's standing between you and your plans to go to heaven. Why are you waiting? 
There will never be a more appropriate time than this one. If you need to be baptized, you need to come home. Please come while we stand and sing.